Well, good morning, church. I hope you've enjoyed this past week. We've just come through with certainly improved weather. I know we've enjoyed that in our household. Uh, and I'm also hoping that you're continuing to find ways to care for each other and also to continue to care for yourselves. Today, we're going to continue our journey through Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, and we're entering into the second half of his letter. And, and the passage we're going to look at in particular today is found in Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. And before we get to that, I just want to encourage you to perhaps open your Bibles to that section or find it on your phones. In fact, if you're watching this message on our website, through the feed that comes through our website, you'll see on the right-hand side of your screen, it even says Bible. And you know what? You can just look up the passage right there and follow along over the next few moments. And again, that's Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. And as you're finding that, I'll just mention that he opens this part of the letter with the word, some versions will say finally, but, but other versions will say further, because he's entering into a bit of a new aspect of the conversation he's been having with this church. And he does so by sharing a familiar phrase. Well, familiar to them, at least anyways. He you get the sense that this is something he said to them in the past. Perhaps he's written other letters to them and he keeps on including this phrase in the past. And you know what? It's an effective strategy. Experts will tell us that if you want to make sure you're heard, if you want to check to make sure a person you're talking to is listening, maybe some wives just gave their husbands a glance or an elbow there a little bit. You probably know what I'm talking about. But repeating yourself is an effective strategy to make sure that you are being heard or that a person is listening. But honestly, that kind of goes both ways in relationships, doesn't it? It reminds me of a story that I heard about a husband who was worried about his wife's hearing. He actually feared that she was going deaf. And so he went to the doctor and shared his concern with the doctor. He said, you know, I, I talked to my wife, but she never seems to respond. I have to repeat myself multiple times before I get a response. The doctor says, well, we probably should find out how severe this hearing loss is. So here's what I'd like you to do. Go home tonight and find an opportune moment when you can ask her a question, but, but stand about 15 feet back from her. And if she doesn't answer, then move a little bit closer and ask again, and, and so forth and so on, until you see how severe that hearing loss may be. So the husband goes home and he does this. He, he waits until his wife is in the kitchen cutting up vegetables for dinner that night, and, and he stands about 15 feet back from her, and he says, honey, what's for dinner tonight? Nothing. So he steps five feet closer, 10 feet away from her now. He says, honey, what's for dinner tonight? Still nothing. So he steps another five feet closer. Five feet away from her now. Honey, what's for dinner tonight? Still nothing. So frustrated, he steps right up behind her, close enough that she could almost feel his breath upon her neck, and says, honey, what's for dinner tonight? And finally she responds, and she goes, for the fourth time, we're having stew. You see, it can go both ways, but it is true. Repetition is a key to effectively conveying important information and vision, which is what Paul's doing in this situation. That's how he uses it. You see, when, when people are tired of hearing you say something, keep it up, because that means they've almost got it. And, you know, we see this around the, the church or around businesses where we're trying to share vision. In fact, every week as we come into a staff meeting together here at the church, I'll start with the phrase, we're not here for a long time, and then the whole staff will groan, but they will say, 
but we are here for a good time because the vision is catching on. Around the church here, we have a mission where we say our mission is to invite people to experience, and even as I pause, I hope you can finish the sentence because we've been trying to repeat this for you. Our mission is to invite people to experience a life that is better with Jesus. And so what Paul is repeating is a bit of a catchphrase, perhaps, for this church that he has been leading. And he opens this section with them. And what is that catchphrase? Well, he says this in verse 1. Brothers and sisters, rejoice. And they can probably already hear it in their heads. He said it before. Rejoice, rejoice in the Lord. And he goes on to say, it is no trouble for me to write this same thing, to repeat this same thing to you again. Because I want you to understand it. I want you to grasp it. But then he finishes. He says, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same thing to you again because it is a safeguard to you. A safeguard. You see, we can understand how repeated phrases can be used to help us understand and comprehend something. But a repeated phrase also can serve as a means to protect us against potential dangers. We see this in our world as well. Consider the COVID-19 situation we're in. You've heard repeated phrases that protect you. Simply finish the statement, wash your hands. For how long? 20 seconds. Social distancing, how far apart? Well, it depends if you're watching American or Canadian news. It's either two meters or six feet. I'm sure everyone said one of those two things. If you've been traveling out of the country and you return to Canada, how long do you self-isolate? Right, 14 days. You've heard the phrase, we are all in this together. We've heard the phrase as well, flatten the bellies, or, right, or flatten the curve, or perhaps both. We could do both, right? Both are important during this time. But as we can see here, repeated phrases serve to reinforce beliefs, but they also serve to be a safeguard against danger. So with keeping this in mind, let me borrow from Paul's words in the opening verse here. And let me also try to summarize his entire message over these next 11 verses by saying this to you. My brothers and sisters, it is absolutely no trouble for me at all to say to you again that when you consider what the world around us has to offer, when you consider all of the things that you under your own power can accomplish, I still confidently, boldly proclaim to you, life is better with Jesus, now and for all of eternity. It is a promise that you can have confidence in, and it is a safeguard for you. If you agree with that statement, that life is better with Jesus, go to that comment section right now and just type that word amen. Go to that heart section and click on that heart a couple of times. Why? Because we are a congregation who does not just observe services in our homes. We participate in these services in our homes. Thank you for doing that. Now, let's consider for a second. Given the fact that Paul opens up this part of the letter in such a manner, it begs the question, what is this safeguard all about? Like, like what is the concern that Paul has that he's trying to safeguard against? Well, there's two things going on here. Number one, he wants to reinforce a belief. He wants to reinforce this congregation's complete confidence in Jesus Christ. In Jesus as God's only gift is God's only means that makes them right with him. 
And when they have their eyes open to this truth, they can say, rejoice in the Lord for what he has done through Jesus Christ. But also he has a concern. Because you see, Paul at this point is aware of some people who call themselves Christians that have infiltrated Paul's churches. And it's already happened in Galatia. It's happened in Corinth. And now it's happening in Philippi. And he knows that when these people come into these congregations, what they end up doing is they sow seeds of doubt. They start to bring about a sense of confusion about an individual's relationship with God. And Paul does not take kindly to this. And he doesn't hold back on his words as we see in, in verses 2 and 3, if you're following along. He says to them here, beginning in verse 2, Watch out for those dogs, for those evildoers those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision. We who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, who put no confidence in the flesh. Now as you look at that verse, it's kind of a combination of strong language and confusing language. So let me unpack that for you a little bit. To begin with here, he pulls no punches on sharing his view of, of these people who have infiltrated his churches. He essentially refers to them as evil, stray dogs. And if we had time to go back and look at the original Greek that Paul uses here, it's even stronger than just saying evil, stray dogs. And he's direct in this fashion because he knows the damage that these guys can do. And so the point he's trying to make for his church in Philippi, but also for us to be aware of in our own lives, our own churches these days, is this. Strays will lead you astray. Strays will lead you astray. Consider, for example, how you would understand or describe a stray dog. A stray dog has no home. It, it has no master. There's no one in that dog's life who cares for it or, or tends for its needs. As you approach it, you, you might be a little nervous because you're not sure. Is, is it disease? Is it going to bite me? Is this something I should be staying away from? Well, metaphorically speaking, stray dogs can exist in churches today as well. They can be hard to spot at first, but, but you kind of know them once you've been around them for a while because they tend to have a few common perspectives or common uh, attributes. For one, they, they tend to resist authority. They, they don't have an owner. They, they tend to avoid accountability. They, they don't have relationships with others to the extent that they allow people to equip them, to, to sharpen their beliefs and their theology, to, to come alongside and to care for them. And the end result of this is that stray dogs in Paul's time, but also in, in today's world, it tends to lead to, to conflicts with leadership. It tends to lead to them trying to build a pack within that culture, and, and what we refer to that as uh, factionalism. And all of these things contribute to poor theology. Now, the stray dogs that Paul is worried about, we know and we refer to them as Judaizers. Now, it's not a word we would hear familiarly now, but, but back in Paul's time, this was a common challenge that they had. And, and that's revealed by looking at the last few words of verse, chapter, of verse 2 and verse 3, where we find some of the confusing language of that passage I just read, where he says, we are the circumcision. We're probably not quite sure what that thinks, but what, what that means, but we're already thinking, no thanks, I'm not interested in being the circumcision. But it relates to who the Judaizers are. You see, these were people who were devout, religious men and women, with Jewish roots, 
who believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but they still held to many of their ceremonial practices from their previous faith. And they felt that these ceremonial practices were binding upon their present reality, especially circumcision. Now, they had also gone to the step of accusing Paul of removing some of these ceremonial practices to make the gospel of Jesus Christ more appealing to the Gentiles, who in this case would not have been circumcised. Therefore, Paul is not a true apostle. There's the conflict with leadership. Therefore, they have a different theology that's causing problems within the church. There's the conflict with others. And they choose not to come under any authority or under any teaching. They do damage. They do factionalism. They do division. And so Paul does not hold back on what he thinks of them. Now, to help us further understand this, uh, let, let's, let's just briefly talk about circumcision. We're not going to cut too deep into that tonight. But uh, ever since Genesis chapter 17, circumcision has been an outward physical sign of an inward spiritual commitment of a person who is a follower of God, of a person who is an heir to the promises of God. We see this starting in Genesis chapter 17. But if we keep reading throughout the Old Testament, we see that the language changes a little bit. And even into the New Testament, where circumcision is started to be spoken of as a circumcision of the heart, that referring more to that inward spiritual commitment. And then when we come to Paul's references of this in the New Testament, he starts to say things like we just read. We, the church, are the circumcision. Meaning, we, the church, the combined followers of Jesus Christ, are that outward physical sign of the inward spiritual commitment we have to Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And then Paul will go further to confirm this by saying that, that this is true and trustworthy because it's confirmed by the presence of the Holy Spirit in our midst. When Paul addressed this with the church in Galatia, he summarized all this by saying this, there is no Jew and there is no Gentile. Why? Because all are one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. That reference back to Genesis 17. You are Abraham's seed and you are heirs according to the promise. But the Judaizers added to the sufficiency of Christ. And because they had done so, they had turned this beautiful sign of circumcision into nothing more than, Paul says, a mutilation of the flesh. Now, what do we do with that today? Because, I don't know about you, but when I come to different church meetings and gatherings, it's not very often I find myself in a religious debate about circumcision. But here's what I want to share with you is that there are present-day equivalents that exist around this challenge that Paul was facing. A little while ago, there was a survey done in churches of 7,000 church-going men and women under the age of 25 who were asked if they agreed with this following statement. The way to be accepted by God is to try sincerely to live a good life. And of these 7,000 church-going people, more than 60% agreed with that phrase. What does that mean? That means that their idea of salvation involved to some degree, to a great degree probably, a sense that I need to do more good than bad. 
I need to be religiously involved. I, I, I need to go to church. I need to take communion. I, I need to go to confession. And if I can do these things, if I can be good, then God and I, we're good. We're okay. And you know what? That's not that much different than what the Judaizers were saying. Because the common thread between both situations, Paul's issue that he's addressing and the one that I just described of this survey of 7,000 people, the common thread between them is this belief that Jesus is not enough. That, that Jesus plus my good deeds, Jesus plus my religious service, bring those together, now we're acceptable by God, is what that's proclaiming. But Paul, put, Paul puts that to the test. And he puts it to the test by using himself as a case study to answer a very important question, a question very similar to the one that was asked in that survey. The question is this, is there any value to putting confidence in ourselves? Is there any value to put confidence in what we can achieve? Is there any reason to put confidence in what we bring to the table that contributes to us being acceptable to God? Now, many people will say yes, and the Judaizers said yes. But Paul's response to them was, well, if you think you have reason to do so, I have even more. And then using examples that would be directly related to the Judaizers' theology, those who want strict adherence to Jewish customs, Paul says this in verse 4 through 6, which I'll, which I'll paraphrase for you. He says, look, folks, I'm not a Jewish, I'm not a Gentile convert. I was born to two Jewish parents. I am full-blooded. And my parents did everything that the law required of them to do. From the time that I was born, I was circumcised on the eighth day, as was tradition. They raised me according to the Hebrew worldview. They taught me. I know, I read, I write, I speak the Hebrew language. Everything about my upbringing was perfectly in line with what the law required. And then when I became old enough to forge my own path, I didn't diverge from that. I continued down that path. I strengthened my walk to the point where I even became a Pharisee. I became a leader of strict adherence to the law. I was an expert in the law, an expert in the rabbinical writings about the law. And if you want to see how faithful I was, check my record. It is faultless. I was so committed, in fact, so committed to making myself right with God by my actions and wanting other people to follow the same thing that I even took the lead in persecuting the church. I wanted to rid the world of that heresy about Jesus. And I wanted to turn them back to what I thought was the right path. And so, as you look at my resume, if anyone thinks they have confidence in their family heritage, if they think they have confidence in personal accomplishments, I welcome you to put it against my resume because I know I will win. See, Paul has a strong resume from his old life. But then something happened to him. And you see, what happened to him was he had a personal encounter with Jesus. Now, now when I pause and I consider this moment of transformation in Paul's life, there's a, there's a phrase that comes to mind for me, and it's this. It's, the phrase is this. I thought I was a rich man until I met a man who was rich. Here's what that means. Have you ever had an experience 
that just changes your whole way of evaluating things. Like you have an experience or you meet somebody, you have an encounter where there's like this paradigm shift of how you view yourself and the world and, and even the things of God. I see this in people's lives and in my own life. Uh, for example, when a young married couple move from just the two of them to becoming parents, suddenly priorities change. Views of, of what is acceptable and not acceptable, what we do with our time and money is different. We start to live for another. We see this happen in the midst of the COVID crisis we're in. I, I had an experience with this myself where there's this change of what we view as important. There's this view of changing what we think is valuable. You know, just about a week ago, Nadine and I were out grocery shopping. It's the two of us following the arrows on the floor, pushing our cart down the row with, with our authentic, genuine Hayashi masks on. And as we're walking down, I turned the aisle to go down this lane, and there, I'm not even kidding, not lying, they had toilet paper. Yeah, so I was able to grab toilet paper and place it in my cart. With a sense of joy, I, I continued shopping, and, and I turned another corner, and I came across the baking aisle, and, and God is my witness, they not only had flour, like, like real flour, not, not the whole wheat flour, like, like real baking flour, they also had, believe it or not, they also had yeast. I don't know, flour, yeast, and toilet paper in the same store. This was an amazing save on foods. And so I was able to have toilet paper and put flour, and then it came time to grab the yeast, and... I wanted more than one, but there's a limit of one. And so Nadine and I had to kind of scheme a little bit. How do we get two jars of yeast out of the store? Because my mom needs one too. But we put both of them in the cart, and I was pushing my cart through the store with toilet paper, with flour, with yeast, thinking I am the king of Save-On Foods. I never in my wildest world would have imagined that that is what I would think is valuable. But there's a paradigm shift we live in right now. Now, Paul's case, he has an encounter with Jesus Christ that does this paradigm shift for him where he has a new perspective. He has this new means of seeing things of God. And we read about this in verse 7 and 8 where he says this. He says, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider to be a complete loss for the sake of Christ. What is more? I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. See, the truth of Jesus Christ was being made real in his life. And suddenly he could, he could start to see. He could start to grasp the gap between his own accomplishments and the accomplishments of Jesus. This would be similar to like when you go to the store and buy a new white t-shirt, or perhaps when you order on Amazon and it shows up two days later. Unless you have Amazon Prime, it shows up the next day. You get a new white t-shirt. You bring it home, and you hang it in your closet next to an older one. Suddenly, what you used to think is white isn't so white anymore. Because you look at your old shirt, and all of a sudden, all the stains start to appear. It's not so much white as much as it is kind of a, a, a dull yellow. And you're not even sure if you want it anymore because you have this new understanding of what white looks like. That's what happened for Paul. He starts to look at his old accomplishments. He looks at the things that he thought provided him strength and acceptance, 
But now he sees that in light of the power of Jesus Christ, what he used to believe was powerful, now just gives off a powerful odor. And that word there, he talks about, I consider them all to be garbage. Again, the English language does not do this justice. Some of your versions will say garbage, some will say rubbish, some will say refuse. The, the literal translation of that word in the Greek is animal excrement. Like, like think of the smelliest thing you can imagine. That's what he's trying to convey here. What's the smelliest thing you've ever experienced in your life? That's what he's trying to explain. When I think about that, I, I, my mind goes back to a missions trip I was on. When I went down to a place called Siksika, just north of Calgary after they had those floods a couple years ago. And, and I was down there with a group of guys from the church. And we had on full suits, full head-to-toe suits, masks and goggles and gloves, cleaning sludge out of basements after this flood had come through the village. And we're cleaning this sludge, and it stinks. It, and it's gross. But after a while, you, believe it or not, you kind of get a little used to squeegeeing this sludge and bucketing it out windows. But then we came to another house where they not only had uh, you know, five or six inches of sludge, but they also had a freezer that had been tipped over, unplugged, and sitting in the summer heat for about two weeks. And so we all stood around and draw straws. We figured whoever gets the short straw gets to open that thing and empty it out. It wasn't me, but the guy beside me. And he goes over and gives it a kick. And I'll save you the details, but I will never forget the smell of that lid opening and all of that meat just falling out into the midst of that sludge. This is what Paul's trying to convey. Whatever the stinkiest, smellest thing, most worthless thing you can think of is what he's trying to convey. That is how drastic of a comparison Paul finds his confidence in the life of the flesh he used to live to the confidence he now has in Jesus. So much so that his old resume that was full of status and full of accomplishments, of these ways that he thought he could become acceptable to God, he decides to crumple it up and throw it away because he has to rewrite it, and it doesn't take him long because he can rewrite his whole resume now with two words, Jesus Christ. And I imagine in that moment, as he is basking in this newfound sense of joy and freedom because of Jesus, for the first time, he says, rejoice in the Lord. I will say it again, rejoice in the Lord because of the great things he has done, because life is better with Jesus, now and for all eternity. So i got to ask you a question. Do you share the same sentiment as Paul? Like when he or when we proclaim that statement, life is better with Jesus. Do you feel something inside you well up and want to shout or type in the comment box, amen? Or are you a little more hesitant? You're just not quite sure you share the same sentiment. Now granted, Paul states this very, very strongly. He uses very strong, vivid language in this passage to the point where he compares everything that is not of Jesus, he compares that to excrement. Strong language. But you see, he's speaking of this from the perspective of one who has come to realize that when you consider the question, what makes you acceptable to God, that anything we bring to the table, anything that comes from our human effort is tainted with sin. It's not pure white. It's that, it's that off yellow, that dirty stained color. 
and therefore it is worthless. And folks, as long as there's even a piece of you that believes that you can earn God's approval by by doing good things, that you can earn God's approval by obeying enough of his commandments, that you can earn God's approval by attending church, by reading your Bibles and tithing and taking communion and, and serving and doing good, as long as you believe that part of your acceptance of God is based upon those things to some degree, you will never fully grasp the statement, life is better with Jesus. Because those are all good things to do. Those are all necessary things that we should be doing. But they become tainted when we think they make us righteous. Because consider how they get lived out in our lives. Imagine for a second you have a good week. You do really well. You, you read your Bible, you know, five of the seven days. You, you prayed every day. You, you, didn't, you didn't misspeak and lie to anybody. You didn't gossip. You didn't cheat, lie, or steal. You were a good Christian boy or girl that particular week. And you start to feel pretty good about yourself. But what is the human nature that takes over then? As soon as we start to feel good about ourselves, we start to compare ourselves to others. And we go, well, I'm doing what good Christian boys and girls do. Why aren't they? They need to do more of what I'm doing. And all of a sudden, self-righteousness creeps into the equation. And that's not good. Consider another situation. The ditch on the other side of the road. You have a terrible week. You didn't do anything. You didn't read your Bible. You didn't, you didn't even look at a, verse, a Bible verse on Facebook even. Just scrolled right past them. You didn't pray for anything. You didn't serve anybody. You didn't give anything. And not only did you avoid those things, but you even added on a couple of thou shalt nots for good measure. How do you feel? You start to feel bad about yourself. I'm a terrible Christian. And you start leading into self Loathing, which is not good either. You see, the problem is this. Is that whenever what is to be done in service and in worship of God starts to take the place of God, it's sinful. See, it's like trying to attribute personhood or trying to attribute value to your shadow. Yes, your shadow is a representation of you. Your your shadow points back to you. But we would all agree it is absolutely not you. It is not the genuine thing. So then, how are we to understand what makes us righteous before God? And and this isn't just a question for those who have perhaps never placed their trust in him before. This is an important question even for those who have accepted Jesus into their life, but maybe do not yet fully appreciate the means of their salvation And that phrase, life is better with Jesus. See, to answer this question, it begins by us understanding that our salvation is not a joint project between us and God. I've already covered this a little bit in in the sense that any accomplishments we bring to the table, think of a time when you're back in school and the teacher pairs you up into different groups, you have different parts of the project to do, you all bring your pieces together, it completes one whole project. That's not how this works. Because anything we bring to the table, any accomplishments that we bring to the table are tainted by sin. Therefore, they have no value. That was the moment of Paul's transformation when he realized that. When he crumpled up his old resume and threw it aside because he knew it was worthless. And he reached a point where he knew the only thing of value that he can bring to the equation is a humble, broken spirit. 
That's the only thing he brings. A humble, broken spirit. A heart that knows it's lost. A person who knows they need a savior because you know what? No matter how much you do, no matter how hard you work, you're still lost. And in the midst of that realization, Paul has this personal experience with Jesus. Jesus, whose name means he saves. Jesus, who came to seek and to save the lost, who is God's gift, who is God's provision, who is the one that it is said is the way, the truth, and the life, and the only way to be made right with the Father. And the way that he accomplished that was by paying the price, by, by taking our place, by taking our penalty for our sins upon himself, so that everyone who calls upon his name will be saved, will become a child of God, and can live in the promise Jesus made in John 10.10, 10, that when he said, I have come that you may have life, and have that life to the full. When we look at verse 9 in Philippians chapter 3, this is kind of what Paul's talking about. He says in verse 9, I don't have a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Now, I understand that that can be hard to accept because this idea that we don't play a major role in our salvation goes against how we've been raised. That's contrary to the reason that we have within ourselves. We've, we've been raised to believe. We live in a world that says, if you do wrong, you need to make it right. If you do wrong, you need to pay the price. If little Johnny pushes down his sister and makes her cry, mom makes him say sorry and goes stand in the corner on timeout for a while. If you get caught spray painting graffiti on a building, you have to go do community service. You may even go to jail if you do a lot of it. You have to make compensation back to the building owner. And you know what? Every other religion in the world aligns with that principle, that you need to earn your way up the mountain to God. You need to do enough. You need to be good enough. You need to get high enough up that mountain and maybe God will accept you. And all faiths are sometimes viewed as saying they're just different paths up the same mountain to the same God. But Christianity stands alone. It stands alone and says, folks, here's the bad news. You can't climb the mountain. But here's the good news. God already came down the mountain. When Jesus Christ came down the mountain, was found in the likeness of a man, and humbled himself and went to the cross, as Paul talked about in chapter 2 of Philippians. And in that moment when Jesus went to the cross, God treated him who knew no sin like sin. So that we who knew no righteousness could be treated like righteousness. This is the identity of all who accept Jesus Christ's forgiveness for them. It is not of ourselves. It is 100% of him. And it starts with us on an adventure, experiencing the exciting time of growing into our complete understanding and experience of the fact that life is better with Jesus. And as we continue to grow in that, that's what Paul talks about in, chapter 10, in verse 10. When he says, I want to know Christ. Like he already knows him in that relationship of, of becoming saved by Christ. But he says, I want to further know. I want to know in a deeper sense. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and to participate in his sufferings. 
becoming, yes, even obedient like him in his death. See, he knows him in the sense of that personal relationship, but he has this passionate desire to go deeper so that in all seasons of life, yeah, in the easy times, in the good times, where there's that power and that joy, like that, those resurrection moments when everything is happy and good, we all know those, and we're pretty comfortable with our relationship with God and Jesus during those moments. But, but Paul's saying here also, I want to know him in the trials. I want to be able to see him in the midst of losses, whether it be the loss of life or, or property or freedoms. In, in every season, even the seasons of suffering and death, I want to know Christ. You see, if we're going to have a true appreciation of who Jesus is, of the cost of our salvation, of the price that he paid to be fully identified with who he is in our salvation, but also in our daily walk with him. It isn't just having buddy Jesus in the good time. It's also being able to say, I rejoice in the Lord during times of trial. I rejoice in the Lord during times of hardship too, because consider this, there can be no times of resurrection without times of death. And in all seasons, in the times of suffering, in the times of death, in the times of resurrection, Christ is present. Christ is at work in you and through you in the midst of them all. And this is the reality of the life that we all know if we are in Christ. But you know what? It's not the end. It's the life in which we live now. It's the life in which we grow and are shaped and have an opportunity to serve others around us and to come to a deeper understanding and appreciation of the fact that life is better with Jesus. But Paul finishes this passage in verse 11 when he goes, and then somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. You see, he's saying here that the day will come when we will be free from all of the opponents. There's a day coming when we will be free from strife and from viruses. There will be no more pain, no more suffering, no more death. And we will be with Jesus in eternity. And we will live with him fully known and fully know him. And you know what? Even when we find ourselves in that hope that all believers of Christ have, we find ourselves in the moment of being in eternity that we all anticipate. Even in that moment, we will still say the phrase, life is better with Jesus. Amen? Amen. You know what? In a moment, we're going to go to a time of sharing and communion where we have an opportunity to remember and to reaffirm our thankfulness and the sufficiency of Christ that allowed us to be acceptable before God. But before we do that, I just want to say a word of prayer for you, and I want to ask you a couple questions. First of all, consider this. If you have placed your faith in Christ in the past, but, but you know, if you're just honest with yourself, you know that you also to some degree place trust in your own efforts that you have this sense that you need to contribute to your own salvation. If you know that, and maybe you're not sure, well, let me, let me help you figure it out. Have you ever felt self-righteousness? Have you ever felt self-loathing over your walk with Christ? If you felt those things, there's something in you, there's something present in your life that says, I'm partially responsible for my salvation. If you experience that, you need to repent of it. You need to repent of your self-sufficiency to whatever degree that may be and acknowledge that it is in Christ alone that we find our hope and our salvation. So I want to give you an opportunity to reflect upon that and, and give you time to come to terms with, with the reality of that, to confess that before we go to commun communion where we are declaring 
the sufficiency of Christ. But perhaps you're, you're watching this or listening to this message and, and you've never actually taken that step of faith before. You've always trusted in yourself. And say, I need to be good enough. I need to do enough. I just have one word for you. Stop. Stop. Because you will not be able to climb that mountain. But remember, the good news is you don't need to. Stop trying to scramble up the mountain because Jesus already came down the mountain and paid the price for you. That is his free gift to you. The Bible says that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved and they will never be put to shame. If that is your situation, if you need to say yes to Jesus, I invite you to do it now. If you look in the comment section, if you look on the screen, you'll see that there's a box you can click on that relates to that. If you click on that right now, it'll take you to a private conversation where you can ask your questions with somebody, where you can pray with somebody, where you can find direction to next steps in growing in your faith with Jesus Christ. But do not allow this moment to pass. Because if there's something inside you that says yes, you need Jesus. Respond to that today. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that you came down that mountain because you knew that there was no other option. You knew that we were going to scramble. You know that we have this nature about us that wants to try to accomplish, wants to try to do, wants to try to be. Oh, Lord, help us to repent of that. Repent of our sufficiency, our belief in ourselves, and to trust in your all-powerful, almighty, complete sufficiency to pay the price for our sins, to be our counselor, to be our comforter, to be our convictor in the days that we walk. Lord, help us to grow in a deeper relationship with you, a deeper knowledge and understanding of who you are. God, I pray for those who have not entered into that relationship with you, who perhaps even this moment are contemplating or have clicked on that button and are considering and taking that step. God, I pray that the Spirit that has brought them this far will speak loudly and boldly and will help them to continue on that journey, to grow in the understanding of your goodness and your love for them. God, may we as a church, even a church that is scattered, be a community to those, to one another, that we would be the physical representation of the promises of the hope, of the joy, and the anticipation of eternity with Jesus Christ. We pray this in your name. Amen. So just before we go to a time of communion, I want to give you a moment just to uh, get your elements ready, and I'll come back, and we'll take a moment, and I will lead you in that time of communion. Communion is a part of the regular rhythm of our church. Once a month, we as followers of Christ here at West Meadows gather together to remember the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, to remember that loving sacrifice that made it possible for us to be accepted as the righteous of God. And on the night on which the events unfolded that made possible our salvation, Jesus Christ desired to have one more meal with his followers. You see, he knew that the separation would be coming, that it was only a matter of time, a matter of hours, until he would be taken from them and that they would be scattered. Kind of like we are now. 
scattered throughout homes, scattered throughout region. But in anticipation of this, Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper that could be shared no matter where you are. Whenever his people came together, whenever they are united and bound together by that common belief in the salvation of Jesus Christ, the all-sufficiency of his sacrifice, he instituted the Lord's table that they could share in together in those moments. The elements that we have on the table before me here represent his sacrifice. The sacrifice he knew he was about to make and to make for all people, that they would have the option, the opportunity to say yes to him. Fully aware that there are many who would say no, who would reject him. He still loved them enough to go to the cross for them so they would at least have the choice to say yes or no. Therefore, this table is for all those who have said yes. Who have said yes to Christ. I believe that you are the one who paid the price for my sins. You are the all-sufficient Savior of my life. But then also that second part, to say that because of that, I want to grow, continue. Like Paul said, I want to continue to know, to grow in all seasons of life and understand the difference that Jesus makes. And therefore, declaring Jesus to be both Lord and Savior of our lives. For all who can make that declaration, whether you made that confession just moments ago, months ago, or a generation ago, you're invited to come to this table to participate with us. So even though this is a bit of a different format, where I'm kind of here in this church sanctuary and, and you're perhaps in your homes or wherever you may be watching or listening to this, here's what I invite us to do. I'm going to introduce you to the elements. I'm going to invite you to distribute have somebody in the room to distribute that element to the person or the people that are there with you. And after we've distributed those and I've introduced them, we're then going to pause and, and have a time of music for you to reflect upon and, and to pray during. And then once everyone that you're gathered with has had a moment to reflect and pray, you'll take those elements together. So let's do that now. We have before us the bread which is symbolic of Christ's body, which is broken for us. And, and on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, after he had given thanks, he, he took the bread. He broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I invite you now to take whatever element you have to symbolize the bread and to distribute those among those you're gathered with. And as you do that, we also have on the table with us the cup. We're in the same way after supper, Jesus took the cup. And he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink of it in remembrance of me. I invite you also to distribute the cup amongst those that you are gathered with. But once everybody has been served, I'm going to say a word of prayer. And then we're going to go to a, a time of music during which you can reflect and pray. And as I'd mentioned, when everyone you are gathered with is ready, then take these elements together and remember. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity that even when we are separated by the challenges of the world that we live in, that we are united in Christ. That because of Christ's sacrifice, we not only can remember but we can be encouraged. We can celebrate. We can say rejoice in the Lord for the great things he has done. And one of the greatest things that has ever happened, the greatest thing that has ever happened, 
is represented on these elements before us. We thank you for the body of Christ. Voluntarily, lovingly sacrificed on our behalf. We thank you for the blood of Christ. That as he shed his blood to cover a multitude of sins, as he gave his life, we receive life. We remember and we say thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.